44th episode of our podcast, which has a new name. This is the Contrafabulist podcast now. So I guess it's episode one of the Contrafabulist podcast, but the 44th time you and I have decided to do this. Um, I'm Audrey Waters. I'm Ken Lane. Uh, I guess everything up until now has just been practice, right? We're just now finding our groove. Sure, that sounds good. Yeah, we. I mean, we haven't. You know, we haven't really promoted the the podcast um, too much, um, and so I think now we have a new name. We have wonderful new logos, um, and I think I'm going to put out a newsletter, and I think we're going to be official. Yeah, I'm actually I'm I'm pretty psyched about this because it's a, uh, um, I don't know I think what you know it doesn't change what we've been doing we're still doing the same thing but I think Contrafabulous better represents who we are what we're doing and where we've gone with this this whole crazy train. Yeah, uh, to sort of to give the sort of a the bit of a backstory and an explanation. So, um, the beginning of the year we reached out to Brian Mathers. Um, who has drawn logos for um, a lot of organ- education-related organizations. But um, he did the, the hack education logos, the, the typewriter, which I adore, and then the, the pigeon logos. And so what I love about working with Brian is that you, you, he goes through a process that he calls visual thinkery. And so you have a couple of conversations with him, and then um, he sort of he sort of doodles and sketches while you're talking and then sort of draws things from there. So when we went into the conversation, we sort of explained what we do. Um, and then he came up with a, um, a couple of, of ideas that I think really sort of crystallize what we were, what we were trying to express, um, with our work. Um, but along the way, it was an opportunity for us to rethink the name, which was um, tech gypsies, partially because I think the 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 connotation, the the racist connotation of of gypsy, um, but partially too because I think tech and um, technology obviously are sort of have become almost meaningless, really, um, and so we wanted something that would. We wanted a word and we wanted imagery that I think better exemplified kind of what we wanted to do. So we came up with, you know, when we were talking about what appealed to us with the word gypsy, it was partially the traveling, but a lot of it was as well the sort of notion of storytelling. And we came up with contrafabulist because, of course, a fabulist is a storyteller, um, but really uh, a fable maker or a liar even. And so we wanted a name that sort of demonstrates that what we do is we we tell stories and we listen to stories um, and we're really attentive to the stories in particular that the computing technology, digital technology, education technology industry likes to tell, um, but that we want to help sort of help uh, poke at and dismantle the the myth making that they're involved with um so anyway so we have logos um we have stickers and yeah so now we're it's that this is the contrafabulist podcast and we missed last week as well um although we did the rebrand we missed last week because my little brother and his family were visiting yeah and uh uh we got to go to disneyland we did we um it was um 
everyone's first trip there except for yours. Uh, you'd been you'd been uh, many times previously, but I had always insisted that I would never, ever, 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 ever go to Disneyland. But um, having my ten year old nephew and seven year old niece um, in tow here in LA, um, we made the trek. So, what do you think? Uh, it was not what I, I'm not sure what I expected it to be. Um, it wasn't what I expected it to be. You know, we, we just did, we waited in line a long time to do some rides. Um, and that the, the ride part was fun, the waiting, not so much. And it was just a bizarre, surreal, I mean, it's sort of, creepily surreal in places that the last ride that we did was um Splash Mountain which I had no idea was quite as I had I had no idea that I was stepping into this weird animatronic song of the south um experience so yeah that was yeah, it, it it was. You guys did well. You guys did much better than other people. I've I've gone to Disneyland. There were no. There was no crying. There was no crying. There was no major meltdowns. There was no major fights. Um, it was it was good. It was. You guys did well. We did stop short of going to uh, It's a Small World, which which after the, the the whole Song of the South experience, I think is a is is an appropriate one as well. But we stopped short there, and and we did well. So uh, other than traveling around Los Angeles this past week, being very touristy, which is unusual for us. Normally we don't drive, um, so, but we spent a lot of time, as Angelinos are wont to do, we spent a lot of time in the car this past week. Um, but what, so what else, uh, you know, other than being a tourist, what else are you working on? What else is going on in the, in the world of APIs? Um, I mean... You know, I'm I'm hard at work just doing the the usual API evangelist thing, which in in tune with the Contrafabulous is just about reading about what's going on with APIs and telling stories that I think are important and matter, and helping um, be contra some of what um, much of what's you know spouted when it comes to AI, machine learning, and social and the cloud, all the 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 mythical, the pantheon of mythical beings that exist in in Silicon Valley API space. But um, so, you know, I'm just working to package that up and keep that off to the side, keep that going. You know, Contrafabulous is really where, you know, um, my heart lies. But occasionally stories will bubble up. And I think if I can help tell them in a way that 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 helps people understand what's going on, um, that's good. So what what happened this week is um, one of my, well, it was a previous week. I think I mentioned it before. One of the companies that um, I uh, startups in the space that I really like got acquired by Oracle. Which is a company in, that you don't really like. Which is a company that I don't really like. So Oracle in, in API speak is 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 the great Satan. You know, they're evil. They're trying to squelch everything that is good and and, and in API space. Sort of in like short, Pearson. They, sort of like Pearson yeah. but for APIs. Exactly, exactly. So if you're an an education listener, you know that's Oracle is the um, but Oracle has done some pretty crazy stuff in the education space as well. But anyways, um, they're they're primarily I I don't um, the space doesn't like them. They're they're unfriendly in the space because of the Oracle versus Google copyright uh, API Java API copyright case where, um, which they've just refiled again actually, and they're um, taking it from a, a different angle and and pursuing it. But basically, I mean that's like 
applying copyright to the the dictionary before we even get a chance to to f fully learn to speak with APIs. But anyways, this company um, Apiary, which is just one of the one of many startups, but has been around for quite a few years. I built a relationship with their founders. Um, I believe in what they do. I really like their tools. They've done. They've brought some really important um, and meaningful things to the API space, specifically when it comes to API design. So I believe in them. I like them. Um, I want to be supportive. And so they got they got acquired. And then I wrote a rant a couple weeks ago that basically was giving the finger to Oracle and saying we can't have anything nice. And um, and then. Uh, Last week, um, an email came in my inbox from uh, Jacob, who's the CEO of Apiary, reassuring customers that they're going to, um, you know, everything's going to be all right. And that was followed up from Oracle saying, uh, no, actually, we get to make the decisions and we get to de determine what's going to happen here. And it's part of our larger strategy. And it was pretty, pretty basic lawyer-like language, but it was very clearly, you know, hey, don't, don't get your hopes up because you're you're part of the bigger ship now and why i wanted to kind of point this out is because i mean right as soon as i got off that phone i got on a phone with another startup that i'm an advisor to and i had the conversation with them they're like we we really want you to help us out and help us figure this out and i'm like okay well i'm going to but i just want you to be as honest from day one about what your ultimate goals are. You will be acquired someday and probably by a big company that I do not like or get along with. And I hope you're all right with me flipping out online when this happens. And he's like, well, we're going to do our best so that, that that doesn't happen. But um, I really want, you know, I'm a big advocate that these conversations should happen out in the open so that average users of uh, these software tools that we are adopting in our personal lives and our business lives, that you're aware that the marketing that is targeting you, what you're being told and what you're being sold is just one dimension of what's going on. You're in, in the bigger scheme, you're a product in selling this company down the road to a bigger company or going public and and selling it to the entire market and this you know this still catches people off guard but it's because that companies like apiary and all these that are all these silicon valley startups are really hush hush about talking about this publicly because they feel no one would use our products if if they knew this was going to happen we're having honest conversations about this behind closed doors we're just not having open conversations about this and so that's it's just it's not really an api story it's really a hey just be wary of every startup that you use every piece of software that you adopt because eventually it will go away um either because of natural causes or because it gets bought by uh the Satan. Well, I think that it's, I mean, I, to me, this is something that I, um, you know, when I first started writing about technology and then education technology specifically, I didn't really know much at all about the world of venture capitalism, right? So, I mean, I grew up, in, you know, my, my family um, had a grocery store. So I was, I was very familiar with the notion of, you know, entrepreneurship right, starting a business, figuring out what it means to make the business viable, um, and then, you know, in the, in the case of, you know, a mom-pop grocery store, again, eventually, eventually having to close the doors when it was no longer, when it was no longer a sustainable, a sustainable operation. But venture capitalism 
changes the game of, I think, business creation in ways that if, if your model that you think about starting a business is like what most small businesses in this country look like, venture capital is, is really different. It's not, venture capital isn't the same as going and getting a bank loan, for example. Um, and venture capital isn't the same as sort of doing, some, doing a hustle on the side until you can quit your day job and then make your business make your business work. Venture capital is really the kind of funding that is, I mean, it is inextricable in some ways from the computing technology industry. And it's about, it's a specific investment strategy that is aimed at companies that investors see as being high risk, but high growth. And so they invest a lot of money um, in these companies, you know, knowing that many of them are going to go away, but in the hopes that enough of them, enough of their investment portfolio is, has an exit, uh, I'll talk, I'll explain that word in a sec, has an exit in such a way that sort of makes up for the fact that they're putting a lot of bets on the roulette wheel, spinning the wheel, and only a certain, you know, you're only going to get money when it, when it lands on a certain color or when it lands on a certain number. And so, you know, when you when you think about the um, technology, the technology companies that are venture backed, right? And again, that's a lot of education technology companies in your world, you know, and in, in consumer technology companies um, uh, as well. These are, you know, these are companies that are m- more than likely, statistically speaking, going to go away. They're they're not gonna they're not gonna be successful, let alone be um, let alone have a um, a profitable exit for their investors, um, and the, the exits usually come in a couple of ways. Um, the, you know, hopefully, I think the goal for many people, ideally, is to have an IPO, right, to become a publicly traded company. Um, but much more commonly, again, particularly in in education, um, is that your company's acquired, right, and. Yes. And it's not always a pleasant acquisition. It's sometimes it's just how it has to happen because it had run its course well, that's, and I mean, it has certain groups right, of investors. Right? right. I mean, and I think that that's the thing to remember. So if you take a loan from the bank, for example, um, the, you know, the, the, the terms are sort of different um, on, on paying it back. But, you know, you, you, own, you owe interest to the bank over the course of the loan, so a 10-year loan, for example. But investors, venture capitalists expect their money back a lot faster than banks do, and they expect a return on investment that's much higher than banks do. That's what I mean by high risk, high growth. Um, and so once you take venture capital, really the clock stop starts running on you on your exit. And after a while, investors, particularly if the founders no longer have a controlling stake in the, com- in the company, investors or the founders have very little say in what happens, and investors tend to start switching the direction of a company to get it towards, not necessarily towards profitability, right? Profitability is not the goal of a venture-backed company. Profitability is the goal of if you run a restaurant, if you run a small business, if you're, you know, if you run a beauty salon, you want to become profitable. But profitability isn't the goal of a venture-backed company. The goal is the exit, Right. So Twitter, you know, Twitter is not profitable. Twitter is a publicly traded company. Twitter is not profitable. So the, the goal is to get the goal is an exit. And so investors really start 
dictating what 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 a company what the direction that a company goes in and it's really not it's really not necessarily something that coincides with what people who use the product want well and i think for me i mean you know the the out of what i'm working on this week what i would like people to take away listeners is is that just just always be aware there's always another game going on aside from what you're reading in the marketing what the product or the service is on the table that you're using or consuming there's there, there's a larger current um uh, that that's that's flowing down the, the this stream but then when you couple that with what's going on with the surveillance economy and and the value of people's data and information and um that adds a whole another layer of complexity it just gets and it gets more complicated um, you know, from there, but, um, it's just a company that I really love and doing important, good things. But, um, as, as you can tell from that conversation, we never talk about what they're doing or the impact they're doing. There's this whole other world that, that is of concern to you and I and what we pay attention to. So, um, what were you paying attention to this? Well, week? I, what, I just want to, I just want to add one more thing. I mean, for me, that's, it's sort of why, you know, education technology that venture back to education technology startups, are never going to be transformational in any sort of politically progressive way, right? Because at the end of the day, the goal of the investors, which becomes the goal of the company, is is to find that exit, right? Is to be either be, be acquired, and in, in the world of education, it's really limited who's going to acquire you. It's going to be a textbook publisher. It's going to be a learning management system. It's going to be um, a publisher like Elsevier, for example. It's it's not going to be, um, it's 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 unlikely to even be someone as quote unquote benign as Google or Apple, um, though you know because ed tech companies tend not to be actually building anything that's of technical value. Um, the value is in in the in the students' data. Um, uh, and so really like these, these companies are not, these companies are not going to be progressive. Um, and they're not making things, they're not making things, um, they're not making education better in any sort of semblance of, 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 of what I think of in terms of, in the term really they're. I mean, I think that they're, they're playing this game. They're playing, they're playing a longer game in ter- with using student data, which ties to one of the things I had a. Um, an article published, I guess, last week. It was a response to a pretty interesting report that the organization Data and Society put out, which was a, a sort of history of what happened to InBloom. And InBloom was a very well-funded, um, not through venture funding, I should say, uh, through uh, philanthropic funding, through Gates Foundation. Um, it was a uh, the Gates Foundation gave a hundred million dollars to create this data infrastructure initiative that would uh, ostensibly at least be a way to sort of standardize student data so that it could be easily moved and shared between the various applications that students use in the classroom and the student information system that has more administrative, um, serves a more administrative function. Um, and it never came to be, and it didn't come to be for a, a variety of reasons. But one of the things that was really interesting it, and I found sort of frustrating about this report was that it, perp- it sort of perpetrated this ideology that I see a lot that somehow 
in education, if we just track more data, if we just collect more data on students, and if we just um, get, you know, get more data, use more data, analyze the data, create data dashboards, share the data between software applications, that somehow education is going to become better. And better can mean test scores go up. Better can mean a variety of things. And that, to me, is a it's an unproven claim. It's an utterly unproven claim, but it's one of these driving ideologies of ed tech. Um, and what I found really upsetting about this history report was that parents and teachers who pushed back on in bloom were sort of seen as irrational, and as being. Like uh, one of, I mean, one of the people in the report compared them to the anti-vaccine movement, that somehow they were anti-science and by 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 questioning, you know, by by raising questions about student privacy, um, and and the rationale, the rationale for this for this data collection and and um, data distribution, and I thought that that was a really interesting. It's a sort of really. A reflection of this this moment that we live in, where where um, sort of things that look like science, right? These things that look like they're scientific, partially because they're being sold to you again by these um, computing technology companies or these companies with connection to various digital digital technologies, companies that claim that they're sort of data oriented. Somehow those are those now perform this role of science. Um, in a way that if you oppose them, somehow you're being irrational, um, you're being anti-scientific, when really there's, again, like I said, there's, there's, there's not often a lot of science that pushes these. It's sort of this sort of science-like performance that these, that these companies and, and this sort of this, again, this is this ideology that's science-like or this obsession with data because it's, it perhaps points towards science and people who oppose that are then sort of emo like, again, it's, it's very gendered too, emo too emotional, too irrational. Um, they don't understand. They can't wrap their minds around it. It's too complicated for them. They don't get the math. Um, and so for me, like that was the story that I wrote was just, I thought it was really troubling that this was sort of re like the, here was this history of in bloom and it was starting to reinscribe this again very gendered this very gendered dismissal that was very real the parent parents fears educators fears about privacy for example are not irrational these are ra perfectly rational fears I maybe mean, at the time that was when you know it coincided with the Edward Snowden revelations coincided with sort of really when we started paying attention to these high profile data breaches at places like Target um, and the the federal government and so parents who said whoa why are we what are we what are we doing why would we be building a, a big data um, infrastructure thing that seems not a good idea that's a rational a rational response it's not a crazy response which is how the, this report framed these parents well the moral i mean the the lessons out of that you know i think it really highlights the dangers of these you know, you say um, these beliefs around data that, hey, if you question them, you're irrational. Hey, we just have this this belief in, hey, we have more data, things are going to be better. But the the other underlying part of, of InBloom was 
the, the, that same kind of blind belief around open source is like, oh, hey, this is open source. And then I would add in there also the, the blind belief that, the, hey, there's an open API here. So, hey, it's all good. Don't worry. We have open source. We have open API and we have big data, you know, and 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 all conversations should end there because it's like there's just this great belief that because those things exist and those things are being done that all is good and how they use that to 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 push back on anybody that actually asks any questions amidst all of that like how are you doing the api why does the data mean what you're saying it means how are you collecting it how are you storing it how are you securing it how are you sharing that and and, and doing all, you know and they use this to shut this down and then what's sad saddest about this is while this is happening and few people are having these conversations about these these recent failures we're going full in with artificial intelligence and machine learning on top of all of that and it's not that in bloom was a particularly bad idea it's not a really great idea it's just a decent idea it's just where it failed was um it was doing open source all wrong i mean people do say, just put the label on it and think that's enough no you actually have to build community you have to actually get the eyeballs on the code you have to there's a lot more to it than just saying you're doing it and rather than doing all of the hard work they just relied on this kind of belief system around hey just believe in it because there's data there's open and all these things around it yeah that's a that's a, actually a really a really good point i mean and i think that that open source and anything open, like with that with that adjective um, attached to the beginning of it, open licensing and stuff. That the, the that word is supposed to is supposed to do a political or supposed to sort of represent a certain politics um, that I'm not sure that it again that it necessarily that it necessarily does. Again, I'm not sure that these things are necessarily more politically progressive because of the licensing. Um, you know, I think that, that, we can, that there are lots of ways in which we can ask questions about how, regret, how politically regressive um, uh, the, the sort of compulsion for data collection, surveillance, how, how policies and practices based on data collection and surveillance um, you know, work to prop up other um, institutionally discriminatory um, histories, um, and saying that well, well, at least it's op like at least the code is openly licensed is a cop out. Um, but I, I, you know, you hear it a lot, and I think that that was one of their responses too was that, you know, because parents complained about InBloom, which was open source, now schools and companies are using proprietary tools. And so it's like that. The that's like that's a you're you're suggesting that I mean, you know, you're suggesting that somehow the open source, you know, an open source technology that was actually being built by News Corp, right? Another perfectly rational reason why parents might balk, um, considering again this happened around the same time of the revelations of News Corp's involvement with phone hacking in the UK. Um, you know, again, saying that we've got an open license on on code when it's being built by by News Corp is, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure why why one would think that somehow that resolves all of these other questions. But there's this shorthand. There's this sort of sh political shorthand that I think people in um, 
you know, people who work in Silicon Valley, people who work around these technologies like to use, and they expect the, those words to be able to sort of do the work for them, um, do the political work for them without really actually ever interrogating the ideologies or politics that actually drive the question. Well, and, and I mean, as we're, we're not having a full, a, a robust discussion about, you know, how these terms, these terms open and open source, open license are being abused and not actually done in a way that actually strengthens what you're trying, what, whatever the objective is. We're doubling down on machine learning and AI in, in, in a very similar way. There's a whole other wave of terms being applied that are smoke and mirrors and, and obfuscating what's going on. And then again, we're going to have the same wave of people that are, you know, um, just, you know, basically your objections of this report is just saying, hey, you're being irrational. You're not thinking. You don't understand what's going on behind the curtain and behind these smoke and mirrors. So hey, just shut up and and let us smart. You know, men right? Trust handle us. Handle it. Yeah. Trust us. Trust us. And and where it's it and 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 I'm really tired of people jumping up and saying, hey, well, machine learning does good things. Hey, open source does good things. Hey, open. You know, and I'm saying, hey, APIs do good things. It's you know, I we're trying to have a constructive conversation. You know, I have. 1,500 different questions you can ask of an API to determine how open or transparent or observable it is. But you have to ask the, the questions. You have to actually you know, have a conversation back and forth about what are the bits and bytes we're collecting here? Who has access to them? How are we securing these? And people, rather than ha- asking those hard questions about any of this, they're just you know, relying on blind faith that more data is good, open is better, openly licensed equals good. And, and believe that these really smart dudes have, have it all, you know, under control. But we've seen what happens with that when people like that P- Peter Thiel, who people have said is a super smart guy, who I feel just happens to be in the right place at the right time and, and is ruthless and made a, a bunch of money. And now he's in good position to really kind of mess with all of our world. Well, and I, you know, I think that... Um... You know, there, I think that there are lots of. I mean, obviously, this is you know, this is a topic that we, that we continually, um, continually circle circle back around. But I think one of the things that we, you know, that one of the drum beats that we that I always seem to, you know, um, be be hammering on is that the people act as though new technologies somehow just spring fully formed and free of any sort of historical antecedent they have no connection to other institutional policy or or practice and you know i think that if we think about artificial i don't see how we can talk about artificial intelligence for example without thinking about the history of it, of the concept of intelligence and it's not a particularly savory history right i mean it's caught it's it's caught up in eugenics it's caught up in racism. Um, and so you can't, you know, when we sort of rush, when we push forward to, to talk about the future, you know, robots taking our jobs and the future of automation, we have to look at the history of automation. This isn't something that, you know, now suddenly thanks to innovations around natural language processing and machine learning and, um, you know, and, and expert systems, like it's not as though all of a sudden one day magically um, technologies reached a point where automation occurs I mean there are long there are long there are long histories here and there are you know there are lessons to be learned from industries that have 
avoided automation, even though the, the tasks that the, the, or the work that's done in that, the labor that's done in those industries seem to tick off the, the, the other lists of the things that people proclaim X, Y, or Z is going to be automated. And sort of, you know, to ask these questions, why, why are technologies playing out this way? It's not a technical question. Right? These are questions that this is questions. These are questions of politics. These are questions of culture. These are questions of history, and these are questions of narratives. Right? And these cultural narratives. And the you know again to to sort of wrap things up. I mean that's why we went with the, the name contrafabulist. Right? Is because the the people in you know today's Silicon Valley high tech computing tech digital tech world are spinning stories and these stories um, I think deserve far greater scrutiny than simply being cheer-led, particularly being cheer-led by people who haven't really thought through the implication um, the implication of, of what exactly they're rooting for, whether it's rooting for venture capitalism or rooting for sort of capitalism broadly. Um, I think that so our you know, our work in contrafabulous I think as contrafabulous are to just be able to stop and say, listen, that's like that's bullshit. Well, and figure out how to how to contra the counteract the 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 blind belief that people have in data and open in math and robots. I mean, I think the. The, the clearest example of, of this conversation, you know, it's like with apiary, you know, the conversation isn't API design. The conversation is, you know, what is Oracle's larger role in this in this industry? And it's these big money moves in a big chess game that's going on. But with like down to robots, you know, we're talking about robots taking our jobs, but no one's actually like like everyone's talking about like like the robots have some mission to take our jobs and no one's talking about well why is automation why do companies want to do robots what are their mo- the capitalist motivations behind having robots people talk about robots coming for your jobs and the skills you have and and all that they're not talk we're not talking about the labor behind what is you know the intentions with robots also let's be honest as as we draw to a close this technology is shit it's shitty like i don't you know this this idea that like that somehow we're on the cusp of this like wondrous singularity breakthrough in AI, for example, or breakthrough in the case of education and sort of data-driven learning science, it's it's ludicrous. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Every day I sort of have to bang my head against some sort of piece of crap software or piece of crap hardware or networking issue you know the wi-fi goes out because it's raining the wi-fi goes out in our apartment building because it's been raining in la the notion that we are sort of like on the cusp of this sort of breakthrough in technology is is it's utter science fiction like this stuff is crap like it's it's not (laughs) it's not good um, and so the, you know, again, like the, you know, as, as contrafabulous to be able to look, 
you know, look at the people who are promoting these these stories about about automation and about virtual assistants and about data-driven fill-in-the-blank and about self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles and drone deliveries. I mean, it's just it's it's a it's a story and it's a story that is really if you if you peel back the layers, it is a story about global capitalism. It is a story about imperialism and it is an old story um, about the rich the rich getting richer by exploiting, you know, exploiting the working class. And so uh yeah, contrafabulists. Yeah, I think that's uh let's leave it there. Till next week then. Till next week.